Our text this morning is Psalm 90, a great text dealing with our shortness of life, our numbered days. You see uh, verse 10, as for the days of our life, they are 70, or due to strength, they are 80, giving us a very particular number of days that we have to live. And I wanted us to think about what I think Moses is struggling with in this psalm. It's how life changes, and we just got but a few days to, to really figure it out and deal with it. Uh, life changes a lot of ways. Um, one of the ways life changes is when you have children, obviously. As soon as you have a child, you're thinking, wow, uh, my life just changed. For the next 20 years plus, I'm responsible for another human being beyond myself. And I've got to direct and provide foundations for this human being. And that changes everything. The same kind of thing happens when we get married. We get married and we say, you know, I just made a covenant, a vow to live with this person unto death do us part. That changes everything. If I'm going to be with this person to the end... Until I die, I can't burn bridges. I've got to learn how not to be contentious. I've got to learn how to live differently so I can make it and keep that vow faithful. Or if you, you get to a place in life where you realize, God's called me to singleness. Once you finally realize that, that changes your perspective and your life. As a single person, God has chosen me to more intensely be involved in a relationship with him and his church uh, that uh, couples and others can't have. Changes everything. There's many things that change. And then at death, if you lose a spouse or you lose a loved one, changes everything. He said, how shall I now live? My days are numbered. I've, I've just got a few days, a few years, and they've been reordered and changed. How do I live? I think that's what Moses is struggling with, but he takes it to a whole new level. He takes it to not only have things changed in life that change me, but I always live under the watchful eye of my Creator. How does that change the way I number my years and the way I do things? Let me show you a verse. Look at before we get into Psalm 90, look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Hebrews 4, verse 13. You find this all through the scripture, but here's just a very succinct place to see the concept I'm trying to get across. Hebrews 4, 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God never sees you or me as though you're hidden, as though you're camouflaged, as though you're masked. God sees you naked. God sees you bare. And not only does he see you that way, he, he penetrates into your soul to understand your thoughts and the intentions of your mind. God says no creature escapes his ability 
to see us and to know us. So the fact that he knows everything you're thinking right now, the fact that he knows you more intimately than anyone's ever known you, how does that change the way you choose to live? Your days are numbered, and your days are numbered to live before the watchful eye of our Creator. I think that's what Moses is struggling with, how to live life. And we have a psalm here. Moses doesn't write many psalms. And so here's one from one of the fathers of our faith. And he's struggling with how to live his days. And I really think this psalm is a psalm that was written during the wilderness journey that Moses has, taking people, the church of God, out of Egypt into the promised land, right, right up to the doors. Well, let's look at it. I want you to see from this passage, it kind of divides up the first six verses, then 7 through 12, then 13 through 17, three sections. The first section is really dealing with God's stability, and it encourages us to live in Him, to live in and through Christ. And then we have God's fury, His anger. I, for alliteration, I call it God's snarl. And it's not meant to scare us, but it's meant to encourage us to live obedient to God. And then understanding the last part of the psalm, God's sovereignty. It's all there to encourage us to live constantly in prayer. I want you to think about how this psalm enables you to live your life under God's eyes with the realization that your days are numbered. And my days are numbered. And what will we present unto God? First of all, you must have a good grasp of God's stability. Let me look at the first six verses with you. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. You know, we just sang a song, In My Father's House. There's a place for me. And that's what the text is, is about here. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Well, let's stop and think about what's the point. It's the point is God is stable. He's enduring. He's before. He's after. No man came before God. No one comes after God. From the beginning to the end, God is. From everlasting to everlasting, God is God. Um, you know, sometimes we, uh, I've done it, you've probably done it, you've heard it. You walk into a room and it just looks like it's full of life. Everybody's having fun. Everybody's seems grateful and joyful. And you make the statement, well, this looks like the place to be. Or somebody else has already made that statement. And I think that's exactly what I want you to grasp from Psalm 90, verse 1. God is the place to be. He's our dwelling place. He's full of life. He's full of love. He's full of the endurance the stuff we need to survive and enjoy life. God is our dwelling place. He's the place to be. And He's not just the place. He's, he's secure in who He is. He's not going away. He's not going to fade. He is strong. 
Now, compare that with our weak, fragile cells. It reminded me of a, a commercial uh, from an investment firm. You probably saw it with this huge bull going through a china shop. Now, you remember that. You said, how does this bull walk um, with all this glass? doesn't tip anything over, doesn't rock anything, nothing cracks, nothing breaks. And the illustration I think they were trying to make, the world is fragile. Things break and fall apart all the time. You need something that's strong and sturdy that doesn't break the things apart. Well, God is that way. He walks among us. And we're fragile, and yet God doesn't break. He's strong, and he doesn't break us. He's there for us. He's our security. And then he gives us a contrast, as, as, kind of getting that, those two together. Verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 contrast us with God. So don't miss the contrast. He starts with God, right place to start. God is our dwelling place always for all generations. It's no exception. Uh, then he starts talking about us. Verse 3. You turn man back to dust and say, return, O children of men. What's the description there of us? We're sinful. We were made of dust. We returned to dust. It's appointed unto man once to die. And so we die. God never does. He's from generation to generation, from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, we're sinful. We return to dust. Um, God's holy and enduring. Uh, there's rescue for us when we return to dust. Christ died that we might be resurrected from our graves and live forever. God can do that because he's life. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes or as a watch in the night. You know, we're going to get to the passage. How, how many years do we live? 70, 80? How about God? From generation to generation, from everlasting to everlasting, from before to the end and beyond. God says, a thousand days, that's nothing to me. Put that in perspective. Just right now for a minute, imagine what was, in, in the number of years you've lived so far, what was your best day? What's the most delightful day you have ever had? Okay, you got it? Now multiply it by a thousand. Suppose you could have a thousand of those. Suppose you could have a thousand years of that day. He says, one day, your most delightful day. To me, I could make it a thousand years long. That's our God. It amazes me when I run into somebody who says, well, I'm not sure I want to become a Christian yet because I, I don't want to give up stuff. I'm thinking, seriously? You don't give up anything. Coming to Christ does not restrict you. Our God is without restriction. He is without limits. He can make your most delightful day turn into a thousand years. You're not giving up. You're expanding when you come to Christ. Understand the contrast better. 
we kind of think that we're in charge when God's in charge of the delight of the thousands of years that God promises us. Verse 5, you've swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They are like grass which sprouts anew. That's our lives. We just, we're, we're like a flower. We bloom, we fade. Like my grass. You ever seen grass in the morning right after the dew? I said, man, that looks good. It's green. It's, and then you come back the same day after 100 degree heat and it says, is it dead? You know, it just looks dead all of a sudden. That's us. We're swept away so quickly. We flourish, then we're gone. We, we even use that term, say, uh, he swept her away or she swept him away with the, with the mindset that it won't last. It knocked her off his feet, her feet or knocked him off his feet and it's just, it's just probably not going to last. We don't last. We're so easily swept away. But God, again, the contrast, God's never swept away. He's our dwelling place. He's our firm footing he never slumbers. He never sleeps. He never dies is the illustration that he's given us. And in verse 6, in the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening it fades and withers away. It's just the vitality is so limited. God endures again and again and again. Do we get the argument? What's God saying? God is our dwelling place. Now, when I think about that, I... I want to put some feet on that. How how do I dwell in God? The word dwell means to abide in Him. And as you think about that, there's a classic passage in the Scripture that deals with dwelling in God, abiding in God. It's John 15. Look with me briefly at a few verses in John chapter 15. And you can uh, begin to put a few applications to how to make God your dwelling place. John 15, verse 4 and 5. Jesus says, Abide in me. Literally, dwell in me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So he gives a great illustration there of a vine that has branches. It says, you're the branch, I'm the vine. You have to stay plugged into the vine or the, you won't ever see fruit on the branch. I need to dwell in you. You need to dwell in me. There needs to be this relationship where the life of the vine is flowing out into the branches. How do you make that happen? How do you know that fruit is working? It's all in this text. If you jump down a little bit, verse 10 of John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide or dwell in His love. Jesus Jesus says, this is not rocket science. If you want to be in God, God in you, you've got to get into God's Word. You've got to get into commandments. Jesus says, that's how I do it. 
I dwell in God the Father. God the Father dwells in me through the Word of God, through the commandments. As you get into the commandments, as you live the commandments, you are living God before the world. You are dwelling in God. So you've got to ask yourself, are you stable in God? Are you dwelling in God for your days? And the way to do that is by getting into the Word. Are you still struggling with reading the Bible? Then you're not really dwelling with God. Are you still struggling with getting family devotion, some time in your family where you read the Bible together, where you pray together? See, that's a family living on Christ, living and dwelling in God. Many times we, we say, well, my life's just falling apart. It's fragile. I'm, I'm losing it. Yes, you must be dwelling in God. And that dwelling takes place by getting into the Word and getting the Word into us. It's not something we can throw off and say, you know, it really doesn't matter that much. It matters a huge amount. Our frail condition needs a foundation and that foundation is dwelling, living in, with, through Christ. And that only takes place by getting into His Word, knowing His commands and beginning to obey them. Can we survive without God? Can we survive without Christ? No, that's the, that's the point. He is our stability. Well, to show you how important that way is that he just moves into God's anger, his snarl, Psalm 90, verses 7 through 12. We have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We've been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they're contained 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it's gone, and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury? According to the fear that's due you, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Well, you get the emphasis there. God's angry, verse 7. God has wrath, verse 7. God has anger, again, verse 9, and fury. And he brings it up again um, in verse 11, his anger and his fury. Do you spend much time thinking about God's anger? Probably not. Maybe his displeasure, his dissatisfaction. You know, I think Moses, like I said, in the wilderness was living it. You're the leader of six million people. You're walking around from Egypt to the promised land in the wilderness. You break all the commandments. Moses has to go back up the mountains, get the commandments again. You start worshiping idols. You refuse to believe in God's leadership like God presents it to you. And at some point, God says, okay, I've had it. There's a line in which my patience ends and you crossed it. And they begin to experience God's fury and his anger. And God says, you're going to 
not make the promised land. I'm only going to let Joshua and Caleb go in. Well, what's going to happen to the rest of us? You're going to wander in these, this wilderness for 40 years. And you can imagine from year to year, people, how long are we going to do this? And Joshua's answer, well, some of you will live till 70, and some of you will make it to 80. But that's going to be it. Only Joshua and Caleb will make it beyond that. We're done. We're under the fury and anger of God. We're under his displeasure. They realized how serious that was. You know, I did the math once. I forget all the details, but you can do it. If, if you got six million people and you're only going to be left with a couple, it's like two funerals a day for the next 40 years. This is when people started waking up and reading the obituary. You know, people really do that. Because they would wake up, well, they're not with us. No, they died last night. Every day for this people was a, a funeral day for the next 40 years. They began to understand how fragile life was. Because they would wake up and bury another and another and another day after day after day for 40 years. Who understands that? And, 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 and grapples with it. Moses had worked a lifetime to lead these people to the promised land. He was just going to get to the door, and that was as far as he was going to get, and he knew because of his own sin. He says, my sin is placed before you, verse 8. And, 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 and that sin consumes us. It really does. It con we're consumed by God's anger. You know, it's true that we die of natural causes. There's some natural things that are going to happen to us. I think the number one reason for death, put on death certificates, heart attack, some, some sort of heart disease. So it'll be listed for a great majority. You died because, why, why did he die? Heart, heart problems. Oh, okay. And then there's, you know, other things that, that make the top ten list. There's, uh, I think COVID's now up to fourth on the list. We, we died natural causes, but I rarely hear someone say, well, it wasn't just a heart attack. It wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just diabetes. It wasn't just COVID, but it was also divine judgment. We, he, he was, she was, we are consumed by God's anger. The, the, the natural causes are combined with divine judgment. They are like heads and tails of the same coin. And we're only looking at one side until we get into the scriptures and we see the reason for these causes are because God has had enough of our sin. And even the limit on our years was determined because God says, man is sinning all day long, every day. And, and God's holy. So he gets angry and he gets furious. And that's presented to us, like I say, not to scare us, but to encourage us it's presented in a way to encourage us that 
Our lives must be lived obedient to God. When you get to question 11, I don't know that any, anybody's answered it. It seems like an unanswerable question. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? I've not met that man or that woman. Who understands that? I think Moses is throwing that out. I'm not sure I get this, Lord. This is, this is serious stuff to create us, put us here. We sin, you're fed up, we're consumed. Who, who understands the power of your anger, your fury? You are due holiness, holy worship, and it's rarely given or not given like it should be given. Who really gets God's hatred for sin? I remember going to a Ridge Haven marriage conference once, uh, and there was nobody in the room but, you know, 20-somethings and 30-somethings, 40-somethings, except for one couple, and they were 70-somethings. And I thought, you know, what's wrong with this picture? And then I realized it wasn't that there's something wrong with the picture, or something very right with the picture, because I went to the older couple, and I said, you know, you're the oldest one here. You know that, right? And I said... So why? Why are you here? By, by the age of... Is this a second marriage, third marriage kind of thing? You know, because by the age of 70, we're, we're hoping you got it. Why are you at the marriage conference? And the lady spoke up and she says, well, we didn't really come for ourselves. I said, oh, what'd you come for? She said, there was a couple in our church. They're here. They're up there on the front row. We're back here. Uh, she said, I knew they wouldn't come. And their marriage was breaking up. They're talking separation and divorce. And so I asked them, could I bring them and pay their way and drive them here and sit here with them to encourage their marriage? I was blown away. It's kind of like this question, who really understands God's fury and anger? I said, that lady understood the power of sin. She understood it was destroying a marriage. And she wanted to stop it. She wanted to stop it. And was willing to sacrifice for God's honor and God's glory. Let's stop this, God. Let's give you the marriage this couple vowed to. Let's give it back in worship. Let's, let's make it holy. Let's make it right. Do we understand God's anger and fury against sinners well enough that we really want to stop sin. We want to see it done. It leads us, you see, the verse 12, teaches to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. If we really get that question in verse 11, then we apply a different life in verse 12. We begin to live differently. We begin to stop sin. We begin to present ourselves unto God, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. That's what should happen if we get God's fury and anger appropriately. We begin to live completely 
different lives. God, let us get into your word. My days are numbered, so teach me to number my days. Let me not miss a day without you. Let me hear you speak to me. Let me meditate on your word. Let me bring my family before you in devotion and worship. If I really have a, but a few days, let's live them right. Let's live them understanding that man is swept away in your fury and in your anger. Again, it's not meant to scare us. It's meant to wake us up and truly encourage us to live our lives as they should be lived. And then verses 13 through 17 of Psalm 90, God's sovereignty is presented, I think, through just a series of prayer requests. As I read it, just notice it's just one prayer request after another. Verse 13, do you... do? Do return, O Lord. So the request is God comes to us. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. He's wanting mercy. Lord, come and be sorrowful over our terrible situation. Lord, please return. Verse 14, he's asking for love. Request, O satisfy us in the morning with your love, your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. 15 and 16, a request for grace. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. I was telling Jonathan this morning, I said, I saw that phrase for the first time, maybe this morning. I said, what a glorious prayer request of a dad or a mom for their kids. God, I, I, I want your work to so appear to us, your servants, that my kids see your majesty, that my kids see your glorious power. Have you asked that of God? God, enable my kids to see you, your glorious power, your majesty. How do I live my life in such a way that through me, your servant, they see glorious, majestic power of God? That's the prayer request. And then also, uh, verse 17, and let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. That last request really just, to me, sums it up, and that is God is sovereign, and God has to even control the, my hands, my work, or they won't be fruitful, they won't be effective. Every single request, as I looked at it, it's a request made with the realization that God's in charge. And I need God to do something. Do you get that? If, if you go to a, a, a friend's house, and while you're there, you're thirsty, so what do you do? You say, uh, may I have a glass of water, please? Or may, can I go in the kitchen and get me some water, please? Or you, you've got to use the bathroom. You say, would it be all right if, if I used your restroom? Why do you ask such mundane questions? 
Because it's their house. They're in charge. They must give you permission. And that's what the psalmist is doing because God is in charge of mercy. God, please, grant mercy. Because God's in charge of loving kindness. God, please, bring loving kindness. Because God's in charge of majesty, of glorious power. God, please, open our eyes. Let my kids see you. Because God's in charge of fruit, fruitfulness, fruitful living. Confirm, O oh God, the work of my hands. Living life rights, understanding God's in charge. He's sovereign. Making requests of the sovereign because of that and making good requests. And that's what the psalmist does. He's pleading for God's involvement so ultimately, he's pleading the merits of Christ. Because the answer is, you can't get that stuff apart from Christ. Because we're sinners in need of Christ transforming our lives to give us this saving, effective relationship with God. And so you say, God, in the name of Jesus, through him, his work, his righteousness alone, please grant mercy. Grant me loving kindness. Grant me your majesty. Grant me fruitful living for your glory and honor. You know, as uh, I get older, you're supposed to be more reflective, right, when you get older. And I, as I was thinking through this, it just dawned on me I, that I pray something constantly. And when I looked at my constant prayer, I said, it, it's the same prayer of Moses. I'm as old as Moses, I guess. But there's three things, you know, that I constantly pray for. No matter what I do, I prayed it this morning two or three times already. So, Lord, I'm about to preach. I need three things. Whatever it is I got to do, I need three things. Number one, I need pardon. I need mercy. God, before I can step on the stage and preach... I need to be forgiven of my sins. Because my sins bind me. My sins restrict me. You're not a God of restriction. You're a God of expansion. I need to be unfettered from my sin. I need to be released from my restrictions. I need to be free to preach. That can't happen unless you first have mercy. Because I'm a sinner. And my days are numbered. And I got but a few. I don't want to live them in sin. Grant pardon. The second thing I need, constantly, is alliterated with the term presence. I need presence. I need the presence of God. Interestingly enough, it was Moses, this is the Psalm of Moses, you can look it up in the book of Exodus. But as Moses gets the commandments for the second time, he makes request of God. And the request is, God, you want me to take these people through the wilderness? He says, do 
not let me do that unless you are present. If you don't go with me, I don't want to go. And that's the constant prayer of mine. God, don't send me there. Don't let me talk to that person or this person or do any of this unless you are with me. I need your presence. I need that intimate, loving relationship with you. And then thirdly, I need power. I'm a frail human being. That's the point of the psalm. Constantly in need of God. So I pray, God, empower me. Give me ability I would not have in and of myself. Is that not what Moses is praying for here? It's the same things, just said differently. So I don't know how you would say them. But are you encouraged to a life of constant prayer? We are always, always, always needing pardon. We're sinners under the anger of God. Christ takes that wrath, that anger, and gives us pardon. And that frees us to live obediently to Him. But we need his presence in his word to speak to us. And we need power to do it. And that's the encouragement here, is that you would understand how to live under a sovereign God. And when you get it, you start making requests. And you pray without ceasing. You make your requests known to God because he is in charge. Let me, let, let me just wrap this up with a quick story. My first automobile accident, okay? I was at the intersection up there by Bon... What's it called? Bon... Lesur. You know what I'm talking about. That big convention center in Greenville. When I was there, my first auto accident, it was called the Greenville Memorial Auditorium, okay? They tore that down. They built... The bond liqueur, whatever. <laughs> it was a six-lane road. And I'm coming towards the convention center. I'm at the red light in my 54 Chevrolet, three-speed on the column, ready to pop the clutch and go. Light turns green. I've got six lanes to cross. I cross one, two, three, four, five, and bam, I'm hit in the sixth lane. Well, when you have an accident, you need to ask, you know, well, what was that for? And I, I, I debated that for a while. And I asked several people, why did I have that accident? What, my fault? I mean, I was free for five lanes. The light was green, and this you know, guy hits me in the side. Wow. Finally, somebody... I think clued me into why, what I was supposed to learn. I said, what am I supposed to learn here? And the answer was, learn this. Green doesn't always mean go. 
Can you get that message? Because if you can, you will spare yourself a lot of accidents. Green doesn't always mean it's go. And as I read Psalm 90, I think the principle is similar. Having air to breathe doesn't mean you can live as you please. Just because you have air to breathe doesn't mean go do what you want. And yet that's how sometimes many people live. I've got air to breathe. This is my life. I can do as I want. No. God's the only thing sure and stable. That's not a good agenda. And you're under his fury and his anger. And your days are numbered. I think you need to rethink that. And we need to come under God's care, making the appropriate request of him. Is that where you are? Have you been doing too much of life as you please? But not really thinking about the big issues? But let this day be a day where you rest in Christ. You come to Christ and say, Christ, my days are numbered. This may be my last. I don't know. We don't all live the same number of days. It's kind of the implication here. How many days do you have? In Christ, they can be eternal. Trust him. He's stable. He's secure from everlasting to everlasting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We're living in a culture where a lot of people want to be woke to this or that. We ask that you'd wake us up to you. That we would be called back to understanding it's not about us. It's about you who are stable and secure. You are our only place to dwell if we want a life that's secure. Let our dwelling be in you. For those who have not trusted you as their Lord and Savior, let them trust you now and find you to be their security. For those of us who've sinned and gone astray, walked away like we were doing our own thing, bring us back. Help us to understand the impact of our sin, how it cuts our days short. And may we come for pardon for your presence and for your power. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.